Matthew chapter 17, the title of this message is The Mountaintop Experience, The Mountaintop Experience. And we'll be talking about the transfiguration of Jesus. Um, all of y'all have heard about this text, even if you're not a Christian and never been to church, you probably heard something about this. The mountaintop experience, the transfiguration of Jesus. We'll be looking at Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. Later on, we'll dip into uh, some verses further on down the road. But right now, we'll just read 1 through 13. I'm reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. Matthew 17, verse 1 says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you want, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And when they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, I am going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your holy word that is in front of us. Your chosen revelation of yourself to humanity, to us, the great rule of authority for the church. Thank you, God, for your true living and active and awesome word. We ask that as your word is alive, that we also would be alive to your word today. Holy Spirit, revive us. That we would have soft and supple hearts to receive the word. Clear and open ears and minds to hear the word and to respond. Lord, you know us and you love us. You know the difficulties of our lives. You know our joys. You know our fears. ask that you would meet us through your word by your spirit and all of those things and minister to us and lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We ask together that you please would also help me to teach and preach in a way that is faithful and helpful. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said, most people have heard at least something about this text. Most people even know the cultural phrase we have that comes from this text, which is, you know, mountaintop experience. That's a phrase that we have like, oh, dude, it was a mountaintop experience. If you're like in Christian culture, you've heard it for sure. And even broader culture uses that phrase, and it goes back 2,000 years to refer to this, 
This is the event where we get that cultural and Christian phrase, mountaintop experience. And it would be helpful for us, wrapping our minds around what's going on here, if we might just think for a minute of how crazy this experience was for the disciples. Like, this was a crazy thing that happened. You know, it's, for us, we feel a little bit removed. It's on paper and it's 2,000 years later. But let's try to journey back and put ourselves in their shoes. First of all, Jesus invites Peter, James, and John to go up on the mountain with him. So already there's some intrigue. Because usually it's all 12 of the disciples. And then sometimes there's more of them. There's just 70 disciples around. And then other times there's huge crowds. This is the first time that we see Jesus say, Hey, Peter. Hey, James. Hey, John. You three. Come here. Come with me. Now, this will happen a lot in the Gospels later on. We see that they go into certain situations with Jesus, and they seem to be kind of this inner circle. You've got the 70, you've got the 12, and you've got the three. But this is the first time where Jesus invites them away from everyone else by themselves, and then he leads them up this mountain. And they, they got to be thinking like, wait, what's going on? Like, are we in trouble? Or is this a good thing? I bet you Peter thought he was in trouble. Because remember in our text from last week when Jesus called Peter Satan because Satan had the wrong idea about the cross? It's been a tough couple of weeks for Peter and the boys. I bet you Peter's like, oh no, what's happening? They go up the mountain, they get up there, they're wondering what's going on. It's just the three boys and Jesus. And then it says, and Jesus was transfigured in front of them. Now we don't know jack or squat about that word. Transfigured, we don't normally use that word. We don't know what it means. We do understand it's antonym or it's opposite. We often talk about something being disfigured. We know what disfigured means. It's to appear, appear excuse me, less than expected. Transfigured is to appear more than expected. Disfigured is one thing, but transfigured is to look far beyond what is normally expected in a positive sense. That Greek word that is translated transfigured there is the same Greek root from which we get the word metamorphosis. And we all know what metamorphosis means. That's that awesome thing where a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, where a caterpillar is transfigured into something more glorious than what it previously was. That's what's going on here. Jesus is transfigured, changes, so to speak, into something more glorious than his normal appearance. The description here is obviously one that is searching for comparisons. Matthew writes and says, his face shone like the sun. There is no brighter light in that culture, nor is there in our culture today than the sun. His face was like the sun. And his clothes became as white as light, right? So as gleaming, as glistening, as bright, as intense, as like supernatural gnarly that you could ever imagine. This is what's happening here. This was glory being manifest in the human realm. And and the, the, the idea of glory was not a foreign one to the disciples. Let's remember the disciples are Jewish. And their entire context, their whole paradigm for understanding God and who God is and the way that God works in the world and amongst humanity is the Old Testament. 
And glory or kabod in the Hebrew, glory is this frequent idea of the presence of God that's beyond description, but it's tangible and it's, it's weighty and it's like the sun in its brilliance. The glory of God. Not a foreign concept to the disciples. Later on, John would write in Revelation chapter 1, who was here this day, he would see Jesus in his full and final resurrected glory and he would say his face was like the shining of the sun in all of its brilliance. These boys went up the mountain with Jesus and they encountered glory. And Peter has something to say about it. Of course it's Peter. It's always Peter. Peter makes the understatement of the millennium. Peter says, it's good for us to be here. (laughs) And then Peter says, Jesus, if you want, I'll set up three shelters. Literally, the word is tabernacle. Literally, it means tent. If you want, Jesus, I'll, I'll pitch three little tents. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you. Mark writes about this later on, Peter's friend Mark, and says, Peter didn't know what he was saying. (laughs) Mark chapter 9, verse 6. Peter just was like, it's really good to be here. Maybe we should camp. (laughs) Peter thought, why not? Let's have a camp out with Jesus. And did you catch what it says in verse 5? It says, while Peter was speaking... A cloud appeared over them all and God spoke. God interrupted Peter mid-sentence. Tough week for Peter this has been. (laughs) While he was still speaking, God interrupts him. And God brings this glory cloud over them. It says a cloud was bright, as you can imagine, this, this glory cloud over them. God himself pitches a bigger tent than Peter could ever imagine that covers them all. And for the second time, God makes that defining statement about Jesus. The first time was his baptism. Now we see it again. And he says in verse 5, this is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, what are we to get from this? What are we to understand about this incredible mountaintop experience? And what did the disciples understand in this experience? I I think that they, with their background of the Old Testament, were getting a little more out of it in the immediate than we may have. There's some clues in the text that are meant to draw the disciples, the original audience, and us into the story as well and give us a broader picture of what's going on here. The first clue is the first thing that Matthew says in verse 1. He says, after six days, Jesus took the disciples with him up on a mountain. Now that's a peculiar phrase for Matthew, after six days. Matthew never does that. Matthew never gives us time clues He never says, oh, and three weeks later they went here, you know, and a couple months later, and then a few hours, and a couple days later. Matthew never does that. He gives us geographical clues, doesn't he? He'll say, Jesus took the disciples to Tyre and Sidon. They went to the other side of the Galilee. They went to the place of Gadara. He gives us geographical clues, but he never, ever, ever gives us time clues. There's something that is being telegraphed to us here. What is Matthew 
hinting at when he says, after six days. You see, again, the Jewish disciples with their Jewish minds and their their Jewish-formed understanding from the Old Testament of God, this would have been like sending up some flags or bells or like this would have been connecting some dots for them because this whole thing about a mountain and glory and six days was familiar to them because they were familiar with the scriptures and they were most of all familiar with the Exodus story when God through Moses delivered the Israelites from slavery to Egypt and mountain and glory in six days meant something to them. Look what we read about the Exodus in the book of Exodus chapter 24. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain. And stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments I have written on them for their instruction. So Moses, pause right there, look at me. Moses is invited up on this mountain. This is during the Exodus. Israel's following God through the wilderness. Moses comes up, and God's going to give them the law, the Ten Commandments, and other things about the tabernacle and other laws. Verse 15. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled on the mountain for six days. The cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. See how this pause right here, give me your attention. See how this is consonant language? His face was like the brilliance of the sun. It shone like the sun. His clothes was like bright white. It was like a fire, like a consuming fire. You see the mountain, you see the glory, you see the six days, you see? Say, yes, I see, Pastor Britt. (laughs) Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain. So, six days, glory, cloud, mountain. Matthew is grounding this story from chapter 17 in the bigger story of God and what he's doing amongst his people. Matthew is connecting the glory of Jesus with the glory of the God of Israel. Again, this isn't something that comes out of left field. This is a continuance of the story of God and his working amongst humanity, this glory thing, this presence of God thing. Now, later on in Exodus, it says this about the glory of God. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Here's Moses complaining about feeling alone in leadership. You have said, I know you by name and you found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. And remember that this nation is your people. That's Moses saying, God, they're not my people, they're your people. (laughs) The Lord replied, my presence will go with you. That's key. And I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, then don't send us up from here. Whoa, Mo. Mo is a spicy little guy. Right? God just said, okay, Moses, I could see that you're, you know, you're a little nervous about leadership and leading Israel and this whole thing. Here's what I'll do for you. I myself will be with you. I will be with you every step of the way. I will go with you. And Moses says, well, if you don't, then I'm not going. Like, 
wow, like God just said he's going to go with you. Moses is like, well, you better. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? He's drilling at home for God. What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now, show me your glory. Whoa, Mo, hang on a minute. Moses is getting crazy right here. Listen, from our understanding, that might not seem like a big deal. From the Hebraic Old Testament Jewish understanding, that was cray. That was, you dumped, like, okay, God, show me your glory now. The whole thing about God is that nobody gets to see his full glory. That was the whole thing because God is so holy. He's so other than, he's so beyond that we can't even deal with the fullness of God's glory. The whole worship structure of Israel was designed so that God's people could draw near, but they could never fully get into the fullness of his glory. It was behind this big veil in a place called the Holy of Holies. And only once a year could one guy go in and they had to tie a rope around his foot in case he dropped dead in the presence of the glory of God. This is why we see, when we see picture of heaven, we, pictures of heaven, we see the angels with six wings. Two, they fly. Two, they cover their feet because they're in a holy presence. And two, they cover their eyes because they even can't look on the glory of God. And all they can say is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Mr. Big Shot just says, okay, God, now show me your glory. All right, Mo. And the Lord said, here's what I'll do for you, Moses. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. But, God said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft or a crack in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Isn't that weird? God says, yeah, I'll show you my glory, but you can't deal with the fullness of it. You can deal with the afterglow. That's where we get that phrase for you Pentecostals in here. Afterglow. You can get my afterglow. I'll put you in the rock and I'm going to come by and then I'll let you see me as I go by. But my full glory you cannot deal with. Now, that's the Old Testament. What God is doing in the New Covenant, the New Testament, is drawing men and women deeper into his glory through the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ. So that John, who was on this mountain this day, would write later on in his gospel account in chapter one and say, the word, meaning Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Tent is the word there. We're still camping. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one's ever seen God, but the one and only Son who himself is God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. 
What God is doing in Christ, an endeavor to reconcile the world to himself through the forgiveness of his sins, the sins, excuse me, through the forgiveness of sins, is revealing himself in his glory to humanity. And this moment on the mountain, this mountaintop experience, is a little more full glimpse of that weighty Shekinah glory of God. Like Israel had never seen it. Like they had never experienced it. And this thing of the cloud and the brightness and the mountain and six days was not lost on the disciples. They were experiencing the middle of a new exodus. In the exodus, God had delivered the Israelites from their slavery to Egypt and used Moses. In the new exodus, God is delivering us from our slavery to sin through Jesus. And he's manifesting the same glory and fuller revelation on the mountain this day. And we get then, as Jesus followers through the new covenant in Christ, we get to become the full (laughs) beneficiaries, whatever, the full beneficiaries of Moses' desire that God go with him. Remember how sometimes we cheat here at Reality and when we're having a hard time understanding a biblical passage, we just skip to the back of the book and see what it all means? We often go to the book of Revelation to get some clues there and we go to the last thing that happens in the book of Matthew. Look how that sheds light on what God was doing with Moses and Moses' request that God go with him and that he see his glory. Look how this connects to Jesus and our lives in Matthew 28. Then the 11 disciples left for Galilee. This is the last thing in the book of Matthew. Going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is all these threads of the story of God working in Israel and amongst humanity coming together. And Jesus is the full and final expression of God's love for humanity, saying to his followers, and I, like God promised to be with Moses, will be with you forever to the very end. I'm with you. And the general theme that's meant to emerge from this mountaintop experience, the the big picture that we're supposed to get is that Jesus himself is the crux of the whole story. The whole God story, all of scripture, all that God has done in humanity and is doing, Jesus himself is the crux of it or the main point of it. That becomes super clear in verse 3. It says in verse 3 in your text in front of you that suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared there talking with Jesus. Now again, we kind of got to get how big of a deal that is. Like within Judaism, Moses and Elijah are the dudes. Like they were the guys. They were the gnarliest guys. Like they were sort of the quintessential poster kids for the Old Testament. Jesus often referred to the Old Testament the way that the first century Jews did and the way that Jews do today as the law and the prophets. That was a phrase that you would use to talk about all of the Hebrew scriptures, the law and the prophets. 
And the one who represents the law in the scriptures is Moses. And the one who represents the prophets in the scriptures is Elijah. So when we talk, when the Jews talked, when Jesus talked about the Old Testament and said, the law and the prophets, the poster kids for that were Moses and Elijah, the quintessential leaders of God's people, so to speak. Moses and Elijah were the guys representing the law and the prophets. And they're there talking with Jesus because Jesus was the fulfillment of everything they represented. The law and the prophets. Jesus was the fulfillment of all of those things. So on the mountain in front of the disciples, what we are seeing is the old covenant and the new covenant meeting face to face and shaking hands. And Jesus' relation to Moses, what we're meant to get from this, is that Jesus is the one who, again, fulfills everything that Moses represented. Moses represented the law. Remember, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus fulfills everything in the Old Testament that Moses represented. So that in the New Covenant, We can lay hold of, we can comprehend, we can be the recipients of truth like this. Romans chapter 8, verse whatever. So now, now, in the new covenant through Christ, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature pause right there. What that means is, though we had God's standard, and we have God's standard in God's law, we could never get saved by obeying the law because we could never perfectly obey the law. And God isn't great on a curve. God has a righteous standard. And so we can never be saved through obedience to the law. We've been delivered from that. So it says in the second part of verse 3, so God did what the law could not do, what Moses could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us. Someone say, thank you, Jesus. By giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. And he did this so that the requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. You see that? You see that? Someone say good news. news. That's good news. Moses represented the law. In Scripture, the law only ever shows us to be bad. No one gets to hold their life up to the law and say, see, I'm pretty good. The law, God's righteous standard, only ever shows us to be bad. And so there's a weight under which we live because of God's righteous standard. We have a certificate of debt against us. There's there's condemnation because of God's judgment and wrath on us. But Jesus did what we could not do. He obeyed the law perfectly, 
lived a life as our substitution, died a death on the cross as our substitution, and rose to new life that the debt and the weight of our sins might be paid for and move as far as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest sea. It was nailed to the cross so that we no longer stand guilty under the law, but free in Christ because of the forgiveness of God. That's what's happening there. That's what this is talking about. So Moses shows up and passes the baton, so to speak. And Elijah's there. And Elijah represents the prophets. And in the same way, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the prophets spoke of. All that the law was and symbolized and pointed toward. All that the prophets said and did and looked forward to. Jesus was the fulfillment of all of those things. Elijah's passing the baton from the Old Testament prophets. Hebrews chapter 1 goes on to say, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory. This is six days mountain cloud glory talk and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. The point of Hebrews is Jesus is greater than the angels. If he's greater than them, he's greater than Moses, he's greater than Elijah. Because to whom else did God ever say, this is my son whom I loved. With him I am pleased. Listen to him. And he's getting across to the Jewish disciples and to us. Yeah, Moses and Elijah have something to say and they're a big deal. But listen to my son, Jesus. It all points to him. I think Peter was reflecting on that mountaintop experience and what God said about listening to Jesus later on in his life when he was a leader in the church and he wrote to a group of churches in Asia Minor and he said this, we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. When we received honor and glory from God, when he, excuse me, received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice from the majestic glory of God, there's that cloud, said to him, this is my dearly loved son, beloved son, who brings me great joy. Notice Peter there didn't say, and God interrupted me while I was speaking to say that. He just says, we ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And it continues. Because of that experience, here's what Peter got from that. Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay pay close attention to what they wrote for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ's morning star shines on your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. So in hindsight, Peter says, 
we in that mountaintop experience had this incredible moment of clarity where the fog lifted and we saw Jesus in all of his glory. And I know that he was the fulfillment of all of those other scriptures. So guys, pay careful attention to God's word because it tells us about Jesus. He just had this like clear perspective of the supremacy of Christ. It's a big deal in their first century Hebraic minds, like not Moses, not Elijah, but Jesus. This incredible clarity about his supremacy. A mountaintop experience that brought incredible clarity about Jesus and all of his glory. A mountaintop experience that brought clarity about Jesus and his glory. A mountaintop experience that brought clarity about Jesus and his glory. You know what we need? We need that. We need that. We need clarity about Jesus and his glory and his supremacy, his beauty, his splendor, and his holiness. We need occasions in our lives where the fog lifts and we see clear as day Jesus in all of his glory. We need mountaintop experiences. You know, Peter was like, dude, let's camp here. Let's just like camp, glory camp. (laughs) Set up some tents and just camp out in this place. And we need to kind of like orchestrate our lives to go camping with Jesus now and again. I mean, Mark said Peter didn't know what he was saying, but I think Peter was on to something. Peter's like, whatever this is, I want to stay here a while. We need to orchestrate our lives so that we have instances, occasions, minutes, hours, opportunities where we draw into the presence of Christ and we linger there. This is why Christians talk about like devotions, you know, setting aside time in our day to seek the Lord. We lay hold of the promise that James would later write in his epistle that said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We believe what John later recorded in the book of Revelation, that Jesus is the one who walks in the midst of the church us. We believe when Jesus said, I'm with you always. And life is crazy. And things get out of whack and out of perspective and we get foggy. And we need to pursue Jesus in a regular rhythm, in a regular way and say, God, lift the fog of my crazy life and let me see Jesus clearly in all of his glory. That's part of the Christian life. That's part of what it means to be a Jesus follower is, is to orchestrate those times in our own lives and to orchestrate that time as a church, those moments in the presence of God. That's why we have here at Reality the second set of worship. That's why we have that whole time set aside after we preach the word of God to camp out in God's presence. We believe by faith what God said to Israel, that God inhabits the praises of his people. Jesus said, we're two or more gathered in my name, I'm there. 
He walks amongst the churches, the book of Revelation. I am with you always. There's no question by faith and by scripture that he is present to us, but it's questionable whether or not we are present to him, even in church. So we set aside that second set of worship after we hear the clear proclamation from the word of who Jesus is and what he's done for us because of God's love to then pursue him and press into that. That's why we don't condone just leaning after, leaving after the sermon. We have this time where we say, okay, let's, let's camp out. We just heard truth. Let's camp out in the truth about Jesus and in his presence. And it might take some intentionality. So we have the carpets up here so that we can assume postures of glory. Postures of glory. Like when the cloud came on the mountain, the disciples fell on their faces. Jesus and all of his glory came and touched them. He's near. He's not far. Postures of glory so that we can get on our faces here before God, so that we can kneel before God. In this pursuit of glory, as we praise God because praises do his name, as we pray to him because he listens to us. That's why we do that thing. We're trying to orchestrate some moments where we can camp out in the presence of God because what we believe is that the presence of God is transformative. And that a moment in the presence of God answers a lifetime of doubts. And in the chaos and the pain and the disorder of our lives, we need the clarity of God's glorious presence. So we try to do that. And it's a shame when the church doesn't like press into that, you know. It's a shame when we don't do that. As we gather here and in the regular rhythms of our lives. Those moments are precious and we ought to try to cultivate those in our lives. And another th- reason why we realize they're precious is because I, for whatever reason, the mountaintop experiences don't ever seem to last long enough. Peter didn't get his campfire wish. It wasn't long enough for him. They just don't ever seem to last long enough. And y- you know, you know geography. After every mountain, there is a valley. And I don't want to give away next week's text, but in next week's text, they come down the mountain into the valley. And the first thing that they encounter after this mountaintop experience is raw evil. There's a child possessed by a demon and a father begging for the disciples to deal with it. And the next thing they experience is hard, cold failure. They weren't able to cast out the demon. And the next thing they experience is confronting their own lack of faith. They go to Jesus and say, why couldn't we cast out the demon? And Jesus says, because your faith was too little. Life is like that. There are deep, dark valleys where we encounter in this life raw evil. Hard failure. Moments of little faith. So we really need mountaintop experiences. Man, we don't, we don't want to just live in the valley. We got to say, Jesus, take me like you did Peter, James, and John. Take me to the mountain. And he will. And then he's going to take us down the valley. Because you know about the valley. The valley is where the fruit is grown. You know that, right? Who grows fruit trees on top of a mountain? Nobody, stupid. 
Nobody does this. Nobody grows fruit trees on the top of a mountain. Where is the fruit tree? Where do fruit trees grow? In the valley. We live in the valley of Carpinteria with abundant fruit trees. Fruit is grown in the valley. And we have this metaphor within Christianity about fruit coming from our lives as we are conformed to the image of Christ. The work in the Holy Spirit of our lives, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are valley-born fruit. We need the mountaintop from which we draw strength and perspective and clarity and faith and we hear the voice of God and experience the love of God as we go into the valley. And life is just that way. There's mountains and there's valleys. Peter knew about it. But Peter, who was on this mountain this day, would write later on about valleys and say this, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, how long is a little while when you're suffering? Too long. After you've suffered a little while, there's the valley, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Hold on in the valley because a mountaintop experience is coming to you. God is going to strengthen you. He's going to confirm you. He's going to make you steadfast. He'll lead you on paths of righteousness for his namesake. He prepares a banqueting table for you even in the presence of your enemies. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. The Lord is our shepherd. Peter said there that there's fruit that happens in the valley. But the story doesn't end with this mountaintop glory. That's not the full glory. That was just a little foretaste, a little glimpse of the glory. They're going to go into a valley and then Jesus would give them another glimpse of the fuller glory in verses 22 and 23. says in our text, and here's where we end. When they came together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. The disciples were filled with grief. Even though Jesus was talking about ultimate glory, the resurrection, and they had an understanding of what resurrection meant from the Hebrew scriptures, that we'd be resurrected one day in glory to dwell in the glorious presence of God. But they had a really hard time with the cross, didn't they? We saw Peter struggle with it in our text last week. We see all the disciples grieving here together. Jesus takes them up on the mountaintop. There's a taste of glory. He takes them down in a valley. And ultimately where that road is leading is to the cross. The road of following Jesus always leads to the cross. And it leads to many crosses. What did Jesus say to Peter just last week in our text? In chapter 16, verse 24, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? The truth is following Jesus always involves a cross. His cross through which we receive forgiveness on which he was nailed 
And these crosses that he refers to here, where in following him, we have to pick up our own crosses. You know what that means? That means denial of self. That means surrender to God. That means that Gethsemane sort of posture where we say, God, not my will to be done, but your will be done. And those two, like the valley, are painful places. But the ultimate glory of the resurrected life with God never comes until after the cross. Jesus was resurrected in glory after he was nailed to the cross. And that is the way the Christian life works. There is always greater glory after the cross. And we're foolish like the disciples because we grieve the idea of coming to any sort of a cross where we might have to surrender self, deny self, go God's way instead of our way. And Satan lies to us and makes us think that's some sort of a loss when in truth the Christian rhythm of life is the cross always precedes greater glory. And if God is ever calling you to a cross of surrender or self-denial or obedience, there is always greater glory in God behind that cross. And admittedly, in this life, it won't always make sense. These things are by faith. That's why the New Testament says three times in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, the righteous shall walk by faith and not by sight. We might not get to see it in this life the same way that Peter, James, and John saw it. But by faith, we lay hold of that truth that Christ is with us and Christ in us is the hope of glory, the scriptures say. We might not get to camp out with Jesus the way that we want to, but Jesus is camped out in us by his Holy Spirit. He's given us his spirit. God is tabernacled in us and amongst us, tented in us and amongst us. God lives in Christ in us and we in him. So in fact, we are camped out with him in glory. Lay hold of it. Be intentional. The hope of glory, Christ in you. And if all else fails... After this lifetime, there is great glory on tap. Remember, we end here, Jude says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Just hold on to that phrase for a minute. God one day is going to bring us into glory, the glory of his presence with great joy. It's going to far outshadow the transfiguration experience. To him, the only God, our Savior, through Christ Jesus, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word and the way that it helps us to see Jesus more clearly. And Holy Spirit, you know our foggy places. You know our deep, dark valleys. And we ask that as people who follow Jesus, you would lead us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Lord, I pray for people in our church who in a valley are confronted with raw evil, pure failure, and little faith. I ask today that you be present with them in those dark places and that you would lift the fog of gloom that hangs over them 
and envelop them with a cloud of glory. By grace, God, we who need it, give us a glimpse of your glory today. And for all of us, Lord, we ask that you would take us up the mountain. And let us just camp there for a while with you. We lay hold of your promise that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Holy Spirit, that you would make the presence of Christ wonderfully real and tangible in our lives today. And that you would help us by faith to draw near. Thank you that the veil in the temple is torn in two, that the way is open to the throne of grace so that we can receive help in the time of need. Draw us into your presence, Lord. Help us to see you more clearly as we take postures of glory before you.